The House comes to oral questions. Question number one, the name of Maya Lubeck. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Energy and Resources and asks, what reports has she seen on how New Zealand's electricity sector is responding to electricity outages caused by Cyclone Gabriel? Uh, the Honourable Dr Megan Woods. Mr Speaker, Cyclone Gabriel has wreaked havoc on the lives of New Zealanders and has had an unprecedented impact on New Zealand's electricity system, the likes of which has not been seen since Cyclone Bowler in 1988. Last Tuesday, 225,000 people in the North Island were without power. There were approximately 6,118 households without power as of 9.30am this mean, today. This means over 218,000 customers, over 97% of those who lost power, have had their electricity reconnected. This has been possible due to the impressive work of those tasked with re-establishing these essential lifelines. Crews from across New Zealand to continue to work long hours to reconnect those households that remain without power. Supplementary. Why are there still households without electricity? Mr Speaker, the number of outages across the North Island are steadily reducing. However, I acknowledge how difficult this time is for those 6,118 households without electricity. As the number of outages reduce, those that remain are more challenging to resolve because they are either harder to get to or more complex to repair. For some, a large portion of outages are spread across individual low-voltage faults, which are more time-consuming to resolve. Distribution companies are focused on restoring power to remote areas due to welfare issues and dairy farm animal health and hardship. Roading and access, slip, silt, standing floodwaters have been significant challenges for some regions and is preventing further progress until these issues has been, have been resolved. Supplementary. What has Transpower done to reconnect electricity in wake of Cyclone Gabriel? Transpower has been working round the clock with the local networks on restoration plans, including by quickly deploying a bypass to the damaged Redcliffe substation, which would enable electricity to be restored to almost all households in urban Hawke's Bay. Transpower has already, has already some substantial repairs. A crew and digger were helicoptered, helicoptered into steadier tower servicing the line into the Hawke's Bay, where a slip had pulled away the tower's foundation. Transpower has also had separate crews working at Firanaki since the middle of last week. I am advised that part of Transpower's resilience approach is also ensuring that it can respond and recover as fast as possible with strategic spears and contingency plans for a range of major events. It is Transpower's existing Hawke's Bay 110 kilovolt contingency plan that was activated on Tuesday 14 February. Supplementary. How has the sector responded to um, Cyclone Gabriel? Mr Speaker, I am proud of the collaboration and coming together in our electricity sector. The industry is pulling together really strongly. Resources from the South Island distribution companies such as Lines, lines Crews and Controllers have been brought to the North Island to assist exhaust existing North Island resources. Crews from across the North Island have travelled to Northland, Auckland and the, the Hawke's Bay and 
Te Raiwhiti to help with critical repairs. A crew from Australia are on their way to assist and my officials are acting swiftly to ensure overseas specialists can join in the relief effort immediately. I'd really like to thank all the companies and individuals that have been doing this work. Uh, question number two, the Honourable Eugenie C. Tamanga o te My question is to the Minister of Forestry. What estimates, if any, has he had of the costs of damage caused by forestry slash in Te Tairawhiti from Cyclone Hale and Cyclone Gabriel? Uh, Mr Speaker. Uh, the Honourable David Parker. On behalf of the Minister of Forestry, to date I have seen no dollar estimate. I have seen serious damage caused by the storms, including from sediment and slash. Obviously, the local focus to date has been to respond to the immediate needs of those affected. Is it acceptable that some of Aotearoa New Zealand's largest private landowners, overseas-owned forestry companies, can operate on steep land erosion-prone soils in a way which causes such harm to rivers, downstream land, infrastructure and communities? I think the sentiment that the uh, member has expressed, which uh, I have heard uh, similar comments of concern from the Prime Minister and from the uh, Leader of the Opposition during his response to the Prime Minister's statement on Tuesday, uh, would indicate that most people are worried about whether we've got the settings right around forestry in some areas. Supplementary. Does he expect forestry companies? Does he expect forestry companies to compensate councils for bridges which have been destroyed or damaged by forestry slash, farmers whose crops have been flattened and land is now unusable, and communities who have forestry slash clogging rivers and beaches? And if so, what mechanisms is government considering so compensation can be paid? Uh, Mr Speaker, the question as to whether there is a breach of any legal duty in the context that would allow a claim for compensation to be made against forestry companies is not one that I'm a, in a position to give the member advice on in the House. I do note that the um, maximum fines for um, uh, breaches of environmental rules are being increased in the uh, Natural and Built Environments Bill that's currently before the House. Uh, and I also note that that same piece of legislation uh, uh, makes illegal insurance against RMA fines. At the moment it's illegal to take insurance out against a criminal fine or a traffic fine, for example, but it's still legal to insure against uh, RMA fines. So those are two instances of where the government is improving uh, the legal framework. Will the government consider a damage levy to ensure that forestry companies pay compensation and cover the costs of cleaning up forestry slash repairing infrastructure in Tairawhiti and Wairoa and elsewhere? Uh, on behalf of the Minister, I've had no advice on that point to date. Uh, question number three, Nicola Willis. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance and asks, does he think New Zealanders are being fairly taxed? And is he satisfied that the government has delivered value for the $53 billion increase in annual spending since 2017? Uh, Mr Speaker, it is the government's role to ensure that we have a tax system that is fair and balanced and that we all pay to ensure a fair society where we look after each other. We have made progress towards this, particularly by increasing the top rate of tax to 39 cents, closing loopholes, changing unfair settings and improving the collection of taxes from those who seek to avoid tax. 
But there is always more to do, including making sure that some who do not pay their fair share, including some multinationals, do so. As a point of comparison, I would also add that, the OEC, that according to the OECD, New Zealand has some of the lowest tax wedge on labour income among the 38 OECD nations. In answer to the second part of the question, the government's increased investment has delivered, among other things, a record 2.855 million people in work, an increase of close to 12 per cent above 2017. Unemployment at historically low levels of 3.4 per cent compared to 4.8 per cent in 2017. Um, more than 50,000 new apprentices and more than 200,000 people in industry training. Uh, a significant increase in the number of nurses and doctors uh, and also making sure that those people are paid more. A world-leading COVID response which saw tens of thousands of lives saved and the livelihoods and businesses of thousands protected. An additional 10,000 public housing places as well as thousands more transitional and emergency housing places and many more things beside, Mr Speaker. And all the while making sure that public debt is at one of the lowest levels internationally and deficits on average are at lower levels than the GFC. Was the Prime Minister correct to claim yesterday that the government is taking less tax as a proportion of the economy? Uh, Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister has today acknowledged that was a mistake. <laughs> Does the Minister think it's fair that the government is taking more tax from New Zealanders, the equivalent of $17,000 more per household, during a prolonged cost of living crisis? Mr Speaker, uh, it is true that the amount of revenue that the government has taken in over the last few years has increased. A big part of the reason for that is that more New Zealanders are in work. More New Zealanders who are in work are earning more money. More companies in New Zealand are making more money and making more profits. More activity is occurring in the economy and generating other forms of taxation. So, Mr Speaker, I know that the National Party like to talk down the New Zealand economy, but the reality here is that actually the story of the New Zealand economy over recent years is one of strength. During that time, an enormous amount of costs has fallen on New Zealanders and on the government to respond, among other things, to a global pandemic, Mr Speaker. So yes, there is more revenue coming in. There are also significantly higher expenses. Is the Minister's position then that if New Zealanders want a job under a Labor government, then the price for that is paying higher tax, putting more money into Labor's pet political projects and wasteful spending, and at the end of all of that, they should thank the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister for spending more, taxing more and delivering less. Mr Speaker, no, that is not the position. The position I have is that we are a government that is focused from the first day that we arrived on making sure that New Zealanders stay in work. We have unemployment at 3.4 per cent. It is historically low. We have more New Zealanders in work than we have ever had before. And what's more, Mr Speaker, on this side of the House, we also care how much those people get paid. And so we've lifted the minimum wage and we've supported businesses across the economy to be able to keep people in work and pay them well. Isn't it the case, however, that comparing the Labor Cost Index with the Consumer Price Index proves that real wages have declined for two and a half years under Labor 
And that's before you count the extra tax they have to pay under his big spending government. Mr Speaker, uh, as the member knows, the measure that um, when I sat in the seat that she's sitting in now, that governments have used for a considerable amount of time, is not the measure that she has put forward. When it comes to annual ordinary hourly earnings, we can see that New Zealanders have, particularly in recent times, been keeping up with inflation. That doesn't stop it being hard for households, Mr Speaker. It is tough out there for many households to meet their cost of living pressures. That is why the government has stepped up time and time again to support New Zealanders through lifting the family tax credit, through improving the rates of main benefits and superannuation, through the winter energy payment, through the cost of living payment. And as I noted yesterday, Mr Speaker, every time the National Party has an opportunity to support a measure to help people with the cost of living, they oppose it. Does the Minister agree that a tax reduction for New Zealanders would help them with the cost of living. Mr Speaker, a tax reduction for the highest earning New Zealanders, which is the policy that the member favours, is one that would have inequitable outcomes. Every government everywhere in the world would want to be able to say that people would pay less tax. But what a government has to do is make sure that the books add up and that we do continue to look to the long term and we meet the costs of public services that are here in the here and now. The member is at great risk of repeating Paul Goldsmith's fiscal Bermuda Triangle. Can he confirm that in the last financial year, government spending reached 35% of GDP, higher than at any time during the key English government, even at the height of the Canterbury rebuild? And isn't the reality that every single minister opposite knows how to spend New Zealanders' money but wastes it and doesn't deliver results. Mr Speaker, uh, the height of the spending during the uh, post-Canterbury uh, earthquake period was just around the 34% mark. Uh, we're up around the 35% mark. I don't want to compare. I don't want to compare the different impacts of disasters, but I think everybody in this House would accept that a global pandemic of the nature of COVID required a significant response from the government. I also recall having been in this House for the last few years, hearing members opposite asking for more spending during the COVID period, not less. Does he share the view of Chris Hipkins MP, who said in a 2011 tweet, they like capital gains tax, they think it's fairer. Me too. And will he rule out introducing a capital gains tax while he is Minister of Finance? Mr Speaker, uh, the government has been very clear about the taxation package that we have put in place uh, to this point. That is the extent of the taxation package that the government has agreed for this term. I'm pleased the member is looking forward to my future terms as Minister of Finance, but we'll deal with those when they come up. Is it, is it correct that the Minister of Finance is using publicly paid officials to put together tax proposals that he may take to the Labour Party manifesto in 2023 election? Or is it the case that those officials have been told to work on those tax policies because they are indeed potential government policy? Um, Speaker, no. Uh, question number four, Dan Rosewall. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Defence and asks, 
What contributions has the New Zealand Defence Force made to the response to Cyclone Gabriel? Uh, the Honourable Andrew Little. Uh, Mr Speaker, the New Zealand Defence Force is uniquely capable of responding quickly to large civil emergencies. They train to operate in tough conditions and a variety of environments. They are disciplined, well coordinated and have vehicles, ships and aircraft as well as personnel trained to operate in difficult situations and quickly deployed to a disaster site. Currently, the New Zealand Defence Force has more than 800 personnel deployed as part of Operation Afina uh, in the response to Cyclone Gabriel. The New Zealand Defence Force has been providing logistics, land and air transport, search and rescue capabilities and reconnaissance and functions to assist the local and national civil defence effort. Supplementary. What contribution has the NZDF made on the East Coast? Mr Speaker, the HMNZS Manawanui has been in Te Tarawhiti coastal region. The ship has dropped off stores and provided support to communities currently isolated because of damaged roads and bridges. This has included transporting an emergency coordination centre generator and 440 litres of diesel in Tokamaru and Tolaga Bay. Last Friday, a C-130 Hercules arrived in Gisborne with a water treatment plant to help restore water facilities uh, and also assisted with supplying medical supplies, including 80 oxygen bottles and electrical supply parts to assist in the reconnection of power. NH90 helicopters have also flown in vital water pump parts to help overcome the damage caused to pipes in the region. Supplementary. What contribution has the NZDF made in the Hawke's Bay? Mr Speaker, in the Horse Bay, NH90 helicopters have delivered food, fuel, generators, hygiene packs and vet and medical supplies to Tutera, Pukitetiri, Rissington, Te Haro Tumarai and Waipapa Marae. These NH90s also supported health clinic teams to check on residents in isolated communities. Using NH90 helicopters, NZDF personnel evacuated around 250 people in Hawke's Bay from around the Pukitapu area, as well as transporting other people from Gisborne to Wairua and Napier. The HMNZS Canterbury arrived in Napier on Tuesday evening. It delivered a range of stores to support the response, including five Bailey bridges, utility vehicles, generators, gas bottles and emergency packs from Naitahu. NZDF staff have also conducted vehicle recoveries at Ford Crossing and bridge assessments in Dartmoor. Supplementary. What else are the NZDF doing to support the response to Cyclone Gabriel? Mr Speaker, NZDF has carried out several land and air reconnaissance support operations to prove how accessible roads are across affected regions. Multiple NZDF teams remain in affected areas, providing support to numerous government agencies. The NZDF remain on standby for solid waste cleanup and disposal and New Zealand Army high mobility excavator equipment continue to assist NZDF movement throughout the affected areas to support delivery of aid to the community. The NZDF will also be supported by our international partners shortly with uh, two Royal Australian Air Force planes arriving yesterday with 33 Royal Australian Air Force personnel to provide tasking support. We're also currently considering offers of support from Singapore and French armed uh, French Armed Forces New Caledonia to help support the response. Uh, question number five, Brooke Van Velden. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, my question is to the Minister for Building and Construction and reads as follows. How many houses does she estimate will need repairs or rebuilding because of Cyclone Gabrielle and flooding in Auckland? And has she requested that the Critical Materials Task Force 
review the building and construction sector's capacity to meet demand in light of the recent weather events. Uh, the Honourable Dr Megan Woods. Mr Speaker, while inspections and assessments are ongoing, there is not yet a final estimate of the number of homes that will need to be repaired or rebuilt. At this point in time, however, we know that across both the 27 January flooding event and Cyclone Gabrielle, there have been 574 red placards and 2,225 yellow placards issued in Auckland. Outside of Auckland, across the regions impacted by Cyclone Gabrielle, including Tairawhiti, Hastings, Central Hawke's Bay and Wairoa, 103 homes have red placards and a further 951 homes have yellow placards. But I stress that in these locations the assessments are far from complete and the expectation is that these numbers will continue to rise. At this early stage, engagement with the Critical Materials and Products Task Force members has not revealed stock issues with building and construction products. Engagement with this task force has revealed that Winstone Woolworths are building a good stock base of jib. Hawke's Bay merchants have indicated that stocks of critical materials are at good levels, but that road access issues may impact supply chains and present a challenge to distributing stock to the affected regions. The next critical material task force meeting is set for Friday 3rd of March. Meanwhile, MB continues to work with individual task force members and merchants in the affected regions to keep across emerging issues. Additionally, yesterday I met with the construction sector Accord to get their read on where things would be and what the needs of the sector would be. They indicated we need to urgently find areas to dispose of waste, but did not identify any immediate supply chain constraints. As we transition towards the recovery phase, the industry is keen to ensure insurance policies enable building back better, local and central government use standard procurement contracts and seek coordinated pipelines and efficient contracting. Supplementary. Does she believe the current supply of construction materials is sufficient to meet the demands of this rebuild? without construction material prices inflating further than they already have in the past two years? Mr Speaker, this is an, um, an issue that we will continue to monitor. It's why since the 31st of January we have been engaging with the sector to assess supply chain constraints, to identify why there may, where there may be blockages and what needs to be done. Uh, we do have some outages of um, facilities, factories at the moment, Kainga Ora, and the, my conversations with them to get their read on supply chain have indicated that on the east coast of the North Island there are some constraints at the moment with concrete um, and cement production rather, but we are keeping across these issues, we'll continue to monitor them, and of course our government has now completed the market study into building materials and supplies. Supplementary. Will she adopt Act's policy of establishing a materials equivalence register to allow access to foreign approved substitute materials that could be used to build and repair homes where there are supply issues? Uh, Mr Speaker, of course um, that we um, addressed what needed to be done um, 
around this issue in terms of plasterboard last year. And what we found is that actually the equivalency register wasn't the only impediment, that by far and away the biggest factor was actually the guidance to, to consenting authorities about how it is that they needed to implement that and to get that out to the sector as well. But of course, Mr Speaker, as we continue to monitor um, the situation and engage heavily with the sector, which we have been doing for some weeks now, um, we will consider um, all options. Supplementary. Does she agree with the Reserve Bank's monetary policy statement which stated yesterday, in the very near term, maintenance, rebuild and repair work associated with the severe storms throughout the North Island are expected to put upward pressure on building costs? And if so, uh, why would she not advocate for increasing supply of products that are safe to use in other countries that could help Kiwis rebuild and repair and keep costs down here? Good question. Mr Speaker, what our government demonstrated last year um, during the shortages of plasterboard is that we were prepared to do exactly uh, what the member is suggesting, and that is make sure that there was access to alternative products and to work to ensure that we could get those into the country for them to be used. It's not as simple as only establishing a register. If only it were, there is other important steps that need to be taken, and one of those is the guidance that is required for consenting authorities. And as we did in the shortage of plasterboard last year, we will take a very pragmatic approach. We will work with the industry, and we will be solutions focused. Supplementary. Uh, supplementary, Dr James McDowell. Has she spoken to the Minister of Immigration since Cyclone Gabriel to advocate for a streamlined visa pathway to attract the overseas construction workers who will be needed for the post-cyclone rebuild? Mr Speaker, yes. Um, and one of the things that we talked about in that conversation is the currently approximately 40 roles on the immigration shortage list in the construction sector that include roles like construction project manager, carpenters and bricklayers. We also spoke about the work that we're doing to train New Zealanders, the work that the Prime Minister referenced in his statement earlier in the week, the 215,000 people under our government that have taken up free apprenticeships, right. the 54,000 people that have been supported through the apprenticeship boost. And I certainly threw into the conversation the requirement that we've put through our kaianga or a contracting for those build partners to be actively taking on apprentices, because we are a government that believes as well as making sure we've got immigration pathways, we are training our young people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, question number six, Dr Shane Fetty. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Minister of Health, does she stand by all her statements and agree with those made by Te Whatu Water Health New Zealand? Uh, the Honourable Dr Aisha Viral. Mr Speaker, I stand by my statements, in particular that my key priorities as Minister of Health this year are winter preparedness, workforce and wait lists. I also agree with Health New Zealand Chair Rob Campbell when he said, referring to me on winter planning, quote, she has made it very clear that she expects us to be doing much, much better, and we've upped our attention to it in accordance with that. Does she stand by her answer to written question 28840, stating that clinical health services are not in crisis? Mr Speaker, as I've said, we are focused on making sure that our workforce can meet the, uh, is well supported and that our 
our services perform well during winter. What I believe our workforce and our public expects us to do is to be prepared, and that's what we've announced today, a booster vaccine that will make sure that people are kept out of hospital, the continued antivirals that will make sure that people are kept out of this hospital, that we continue to support our staff through improving their pay and the conditions in which they work. These are the sorts of things we do to avoid having those sorts of acute demand problems that we saw last winter. Is the health system in crisis or not? Mr Speaker, I have on multiple occasions recognised the huge strain that our healthcare workers have been under, including in many conversations with them up and down the country. And what I have said to them, and what I know that they expect us to do, is that we will take the practical actions that will keep people well, keep people out of hospitals, and make sure that we support them to manage acute demand. How will the staff improvements at Middlemore ED that she stated last week ensure that Middlemore ED is ready for winter, when on the same day she said this, the Chair of Health New Zealand stated that the workforce shortages plaguing Middlemore's ED would not be addressed in time for the winter flu season and would continue to impact services? Mr Speaker, Mr Campbell and I are in agreement that we both need that there needs to be concerted action to improve the, the staffing levels across emergency departments and in other parts of the health system. But what we do want to be clear to our, to our workers about is that there is not going to be a simple fix, no single silver bullet, that will mean that the pressure is totally gone away by this winter. We are totally committed to making sure we're taking action on multiple fronts to back our staff in terms of vaccinations, in terms of antivirals, and making sure that the management of patients in the community and the hospital support them to deliver the excellent care that they do. What policies and actions from the previous Minister of Health will she not be following and why? Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, I have great respect for my colleague Andrew Little and the tremendous amount of work he's done, particularly to advance, to, bu to build a primary mental health care system in this country that now covers half the country, to reform our health system and his commitment to health care equity and establishing a Māori health authority. Who are the people called boundary spanners in the Health New Zealand document titled Unify to Simplify and how will she tell the 80-year-old man in South Auckland who is on the waiting list for skin grafts that she is sending a boundary spanner? Mr Speaker, that's a very specific question and if the, minister, if the member wants me... If the member wants me to reply to a detailed question in any one of the tens of thousands of pages of documentation produced by Te Ora, he is welcome to put that in writing. Uh, question number seven, Lamonga Lydia Sosene. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question to the Minister for the Environment. What actions is he taking in response to Cyclone Gabriel? Mr Speaker. Uh, the Honourable David Parker. Uh, today the Prime Minister announced that a ministerial inquiry will be held forthwith into land use causing forestry slash and sediment related damage in the Gisborne, Tairawhiti and Wairoa districts. The inquiry will report by the end of April. It will investigate past and current land use practices and the significant impacts on people, livestock, buildings and the environment. It would also describe the economic drivers of current practice and economic constraints on alternatives. 
The inquiry will be chaired by former Government Minister and Gisborne resident, the Honourable Hekia Parata. She will be joined by former Regional Council Chief Executive Bill Bayfield and forestry expert Matthew McCloy. People in the affected communities and wider public are invited to provide submissions to the inquiry panel. Supplementary, what are some of the current problems in the region? Uh, homes and roads have been destroyed. Massive quantities of sediment, logs and slash have choked rivers and estuaries and caused serious harm to people, coastal waters and productive land. And this has occurred now on many occasions. Some mistakes were made by uh, post-cyclone bowler with the best of intentions. Pine trees were planted on very steep country and across creeks without buffers. The collection of slash and its use is less economic when distant from processing facilities, which makes problems more difficult. Plantation and permanent forests, exotic and indigenous, raise different but important considerations. All these issues can be considered by the inquiry. Supplementary, what recommendations does he expect from the inquiry? I'm expecting the panel to make recommendations to improve outcomes, including possible changes needed to land use and its regulation at central and local government levels. This can include consideration of production and permanent forest practices, resource management plans and national direction. For example, the National Environment Standard for Forestry uh, and the Tairawhiti and Wairoa District Resource Management Plans. Supplementary. What actions have central and local government already taken to improve enforcement and increase penalties for environmental offences? Uh, Mr Speaker, although decisions for prosecutions are matter for local councils under the Resource Management Act, uh, following uh, events a couple of years ago, adjacent regional councils and the Ministry for the Environment helped the Gisborne District Council at their request and in 2018 that council showed it was prepared to take action, successfully prosecuting five forestry companies for poor forest harvesting and management. The court imposed fines ranging from $124,000 to $379,000. The resource management reforms currently before the Environment Committee include new tools to assist enforcement, including a new civil enforcement regime, which I haven't got time to detail, as well as the increases in the maximum fines from $300,000 to $1 million for people and $600,000 to $10 million uh, for companies. It's also proposed to ban insurance against fines, as I said earlier. Uh, question number eight in the name of Ricardo Menendez-March. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Social Development and Employment and asks, has she seen reports that Aotearoa's most low-income communities are disproportionately impacted by climate events such as flooding? If so, what steps is her government taking to support those on the lowest incomes to recover from recent weather events? Uh, the Honourable Priyanka Radhakrishnan. As part of the government's work on the equitable transition strategy, I have been briefed on the impacts of climate events on low-income low New Zealanders. Um, Mr Speaker, not only has this government made significant permanent improvements to income support for New Zealanders 
We have also rolled out an immediate response to support those impacted by the recent floods and cyclone. To date, over $40 million has been given out to over 78,000 people in civil defence payments to help families with the costs that they have incurred as a result of those recent weather events. We're also backing our social, uh, our social service providers and community groups with a support package of $11.5 million. Mr Speaker, this is just the beginning of our response. As we move into recovery, we will continue to assess what other supports may be needed. Supplementary. Does she believe that the civil defence payment adequately supports families who have lost everything in recent weather events, considering the amount people can receive for food, bedding and clothing has not been increased in almost 10 years? Um, Mr Speaker, there is already a considerable amount of both flexibility and um, the, you know, the types of payments or the things that people can apply for civil defence payments to cover to ensure that people do get the support that they need during this um, crisis. This is an important part of our hardship assistance offerings. Does she agree that livable incomes are key to building resilience in the face of climate change? And if so, is she committed to lifting benefits to livable levels? Um, Mr Speaker, um, our government has already made significant increases to benefits, in fact the largest such increases since the 1940s. Um, compared to the policy settings of 2017, um, we know that 351,000 people on benefits have seen increases that have resulted in um, them being benefited by about $113 per week. That goes up to $137 per week uh, in winter. In fact, total income after housing costs, we've seen an increase of 43%. Um, it's 43% higher, basically, in 2022 uh, since 2018, and that's as a direct result of this government's reforms. Will the Minister reassure beneficiaries in areas impacted by recent extreme weather events that they will not be sanctioned should they fail to meet their obligations under work and income, and if not, why not? Um, Mr Speaker, as I've already outlined, this government is taking steps to ensure that those uh, who are affected by the recent weather events are getting the support that they need. We will continue to do that. We have continued to ensure that we reduce hardship for all New Zealanders, and that's what we'll continue to do. Order. Sorry, I mean, I was asking about sanctions, and so while um, I'm not looking for a specific yes or no, the, the issue of assuring beneficiaries of whether sanctions will be applied can, or not was addressed. Can you ask the question again? We'll Absolutely. Will the minister reassure beneficiaries in areas impacted by recent extreme weather events that they will not be sanctioned should they fail to meet their obligations under work and income? And if not, why not? Uh, Mr Speaker, look, we've continually taken the view that we will um, look at what sanctions we can get rid of. We have done that. We have already said that in areas where people are affected by the cyclones, we will continue to support them. So we will continue to reduce hardship in various ways that we can. Supplementary, will she consider bringing forward the winter energy payment to provide relief for families on low incomes impacted by severe weather events? 
Uh, Mr. Speaker, as I have said, this is the beginning of the support that, we've provide, that we are providing to individuals and families who have been affected by the recent weather events. I have already outlined the supports that we are providing. Um, I will reiterate what the Prime Minister has also mentioned in his statement from April this year. We will roll out the next phase in the um, cost of living support. We'll reverse a freeze on the income indexation threshold for childcare eligibility put in place by National in 2010. That means over 10,000 additional children are estimated to receive support. The family tra tax credit will also increase um, in April this year. We've put in packages of support to support people directly, but also to support the NGOs and community groups that are supporting them. Um, we will continue to assess the situation and take um, action as appropriate. Uh, question number nine, the Honourable Paul Goldsmith. Uh, th thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Police. Uh, does he agree with the Prime Minister, who said, quote, there's been no substantial substantiation to the allegation that people on checkpoints have had guns pulled on them. If anyone wants to report that that happened, they should go to the police, end of quote. Uh, and is he aware an incident was reported to the police by the victims? Uh, the Honourable Andrew Little. Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister of Police, yes and yes. Why was a journalist able to easily substantiate the claim, but the police commissioner and the minister weren't? And why was their initial reflex to minimise the claim? Uh, Mr Speaker, the facts behind this matter are is that uh, the police received a 111 call on the day in question from the manager of a roading crew, the manager who was not present at the time of the events, to report allegations made by the roading crew. Uh, later in the day, uh, police attended on the manager and the crew to ascertain further information and, according to the advice from the police, obtained no uh, information of evidential value but nevertheless referred the matter to the local CIB and it is now in the hands of a detective sergeant for further investigation. Does he believe... Kylie uh, on a roadblock who told Newsroom, quote, if the government says there's no such thing as looting or it's been exaggerated, I say liar, liar, pants on fire, end quote. And is she voicing reasonable concerns about what's going on in her community or is she one of the people whipping up hysteria that he referred to in the House yesterday? Smoke, Andrew. Mr Speaker, it's very important, again on behalf of the Minister of Police, that when uh, uh, allegations of crimes are made is that they are reported to the police. It's equally important that the police follow up those, uh, those reports and those complaints. Both of those things happened in this case. So far, the police have not been able to obtain anything of evidential value, but it remains under investigation. Was Di, another Hawke's Bay local who told Newsroom, quote, they'll take anything, generators, gas bottles, anything they can find. These gangs are organised, they're more organised than the police. Again, voicing reasonable concerns about what's going on at her commuting, or whipping up hysteria, as the Minister said in the House yesterday. 
Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister of Police, I back New Zealanders who, when they see criminal offending happening, reporting it to the police, and I back our New Zealand police force when they receive reports to follow them up appropriately and professionally and investigate and bring those who commit crimes to order. Minister, what on earth was he thinking when he said on Monday that, quote, now is not the time, end of quote, for gangs to loot and predate on vulnerable victims of the floods? And does he acknowledge that such statements make his government look ridiculous? Uh, Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister of Police, it's very important that the Minister of Police supports our professional police force to do their job to uphold law and order. And in the very difficult circumstances of a civil emergency, when entire communities are under considerable distress because of the things that have happened to them, is that the maximum support is given to the police to do their job to uphold law and order, to respond to complaints of criminal offending and investigate them accordingly. That's what I was doing and that's what is happening. Uh, question number 10, Camilla Ballach. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Education. What resources is the government putting into schools so that they can meet attendance and engagement targets? Uh, the Honourable Jane Tanetti. Mr Speaker, we know how important it is for young people to be at school and engaged in their learning, which is why this government is putting in every effort to making sure they are. Earlier this week, I announced a $74 million package which targets resources on the ground to support schools and students to make a difference in improving the full range of school attendance rates. This funding will establish 82 new attendance officer roles to work with students who have low or declining attendance rates and further support the attendance service to ensure they are going to school every day unless they are sick. Supplementary. How will these attendance officers get children re-engaged with education? Mr Speaker, these attendance officers will be based at the chalk face because that is where change will occur. They will work with students who have low or declining attendance rates. They will also work alongside parents and schools to turn around attendance rates. They'll do this by identifying and addressing the barriers to those kids attending and engaging in education. This government understands turning this ship around will require input from the whole community, including parents, but we are laser focused on making sure our kids are not just turning up to school, but that they are engaged in their learning. How will this announcement support students who are chronically absent or not enrolled? Mr Speaker, the 82 attendance officers announced this week will work with students who have a regular or moderate absence. This is in addition to the work existing attendance officers do with the chronic absent or non-enrolled students who are referred to the attendance service where this government has also significantly increased capacity. Our new funding will provide cost pressure and volume increase to bolster these services and support a further 1,300 chronically absent students in referrals of 1,500 non-enrolled young people. Uh, supplementary, the Honourable Paul Goldsman. Supplementary, can she explain how it is precisely 82 attendance officers uh, that is required to get 95,000 chronically absent kids back to school when she should when she did not know earlier this week how many attendance officers there were at all in the first place. Speaker, that member has misinterpreted the data and uh, has not taken the data uh, into account at all. 
What, if, if the member, that member had read that data correctly, he would understand that the absence rates are split into justified absence and non-justified absence. Justified absence, Mr Speaker, also occurs in the chronically absent young people. So therefore, they are, there are many of those young people who were chronically absent who had absolute justified attendance. I suggest that the member goes back and has another look at that data and understands it. But I also suggest, Mr Speaker, that that member listens to the answer to the next question because, Mr Speaker, it might help his understanding of the data. Order. How will the package refer to improve the quality of the attendance data collected by schools? Mr Speaker, accurately and timely attendance data enables schools to identify patterns of behaviour and to intervene quickly where attendance patterns change. As a former teacher and principal of 27 years, I know from experience there are flaws in the way data is currently collected and interpreted, especially by those outside of the sector. That is why, as part of our new package, experts will be assigned to work directly with schools and communities to improve the quality, understanding and use of the attendance data. Uh, uh, point of order, Chris Bishop. Mr Speaker, there was a revealing moment in one of the supplementary answers then from my colleague Paul Goldsmith. The Minister said the member should listen to the answer to the next question, indicating that she knew precisely what was going to be asked of her by the uh, member asking the original primary. This is meant to be question time, not an uh, example of prepared statements being read out by the Minister. Uh, the Honourable Grant Roberts. Mr Speaker, um, uh, I'm aware that uh, the member who raised the point of order has um, some experience in both uh, particularly the preparation of questions and answers in this House. And it was often, I would wonder, just how Jerry Brownlee was so eloquent. Um, I think the member might find that the way in which questions are constructed by the government has been pretty consistent over a long period of time. Question number 11, Chris Pink. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, my question is to the Minister for Courts. Does he have confidence that the court system is delivering timely justice for all Kiwis? If so, why has the number of days to dispose of a serious criminal case in the District Court increased by 55 per cent since 2017? Uh, the Mr. Honourable Speaker. David Parkin. Uh, on, behalf of, uh, on behalf of the Minister, I have uh, confidence in the court system but do acknowledge there has been an increase in delays. There are a number of reasons for this. These include the uh, increased complexity and length of multi-defendant jury trials for drug offences. There's also been a trend towards more defendants electing trial by jury and later guilty pleas. The COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated delays but also highlighted opportunities for us to address them such as the better use of technology within the district court. Supplementary question. What explanation then does the minister give for the fact that the number of families waiting more than three years for resolution through the family court has tripled since 2017? And what, estimate, uh, what impact does he estimate any government actions may have on those numbers? Uh, the main reason for delays in the district court were the ridiculous changes to the rules by the last government, uh, which uh, continued to be in place 
until just recently when the current government fixed them. To question. Uh, why is it that into its sixth and final year of the current government, uh, the Minister is still blaming the actions of the previous government rather than any, uh, taking any concrete positive action to actually fix these problems that he refers to? Uh, well, it's certainly not the final year of this government. I've got bad news for the member. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but in, ter in, terms, in terms of the steps that are being taken, uh, um, the systems in the courts for many years, including under the prior national government, have been very, very antiquated. A paper-based system is run by the courts that does not link uh, electronically to either judges, uh, prosecutors, defendants or their counsel. Uh, the uh, response of the government to that is to have underway the curing of that problem through the digitisation of court practices which will vastly improve efficiencies. That uh, project, Teo Reka, Reka, Teo Reka, is in procurement at the moment and after the completion of the IRD upgrade, which was an enormous project, this is one of the biggest IT builds across government and over time it's going to have a, a huge effect on the efficiency of the courts and that long term is the way to address these backlogs. In the meantime, post-COVID, which did make uh, these delays worse, $90 million of additional funding was provided to the courts to employ additional uh, judges and administrative staff. Thank you, Christian. Uh, is the Minister aware that moves were made uh, during the COVID-19 response that uh, allowed greater use of uh, audiovisual link and other such technology, but the Government uh, disregarded the proposal of the National Party that such changes should have been made permanent and thereby relieving uh, some of the problems to which he is referring? Uh, I am aware that there was greater use of audiovisual technology uh, uh, and other uh, um, mechanisms during COVID. I think the uh, District Court Working Group on that issue has done some good work and I'm aware that the Ministry, as a consequence, is expanding the availability of audio-visual facilities in more courts. Question. Uh, what explanation does uh, the Minister give for the fact that uh, coroner court wait times uh, and due delays adding to the grief and stress of families has been increasing every year uh, since his government has been in uh, office to the extent that it is now uh, a tenfold increase of uh, families waiting longer than five years. Uh, and what impact does he think any reforms of the government may make in that area? Uh, the member is correct that the coronial uh, work program, uh, the coronial services have lengthened in the time it takes to dispose of matters before them. There have been, uh, there are changes currently before the parliament uh, to address that, uh, both by uh, allowing uh, more general findings of death by general practitioners of elderly people whose cause of death is indeterminate, uh, which uh, has led to the clogging up of coronial services because those general findings of death have not been uh, permitted under the existing legal framework, so that's one part of the solution. In addition, the government has funded uh, uh, additional uh, coroners and associate coroners. Order. 
point of order, Chris Bean. Uh, thank you, sir. I seek leave to table uh, the answer to written parliamentary question 1036, 2023, which is not yet uh, publicly available, uh, regarding the number of active coronial cases of five years or greater. Leave a sort for that purpose. Is there any objection? It appears to be none that may be tabled. Question number 12, Dr Tracy McClellan. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Health. What recent announcements has she made about the future of New Zealand's COVID-19 vaccination programme? Uh, the Honourable Dr Aisha Verrill. Mr Speaker, today I was pleased to announce that anyone over the age of 30 will be able to receive the new bivalent COVID vaccine from the 1st of April. Those at higher risk of severe illness from COVID-19 will also be able to receive an additional booster, regardless of how many doses they've previously had. Supplementary question. How does this help us prepare for winter? Mr Speaker, priority for me as Minister of Health is preparing and planning for winter to ease the pressure on emergency departments and other parts of the health system. Uptake of the bivalent vaccine will prevent people from becoming seriously unwell and going to hospital. We know there is more to do, but this is the first step in our plan to keep Kiwis well for winter. How will the vaccine be rolled out? There are currently 717 clinics offering COVID-19 vaccinations across the Motu, including general practices, pharmacies, community centres and Māori and Pacific providers. We are working with communities to scale up vaccination campaigns, including pop-up events, targeted activities at priority groups and outreach to those eligible. How will people be able to book their vaccine? Booking the vaccine is easy and the COVID-19 bivalent vaccine remains free. We will be running a comprehensive programme to encourage vaccination both against both influenza and COVID-19, targeting those audiences most at risk for the, in the lead up to winter. You can visit www.bookmyvaccine.nz, call 0800 28 29 26 or talk to you, the health professional you see most often. Uh, that concludes oral questions.